0: Okay, now we're going to break out our Bibles. So will you go ahead and pick up your Bibles? We're going to be studying the book of Luke. We're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. We're continuing the series called The First Followers of Jesus. The First Followers of Jesus, as we're looking at the way that Jesus built this unstoppable movement, he would amaze his first followers. He would call his first followers. That's the same process we're going through as well. We want to have a sense of awe at who Jesus is. And then we want to follow him and do what he says. This week, we're in Luke 6, verses 27 through 49. So Joey did a great job last week looking at the beginning of what's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, a lot of echoes of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. Um, and he got us started with that, with the good life. And so this week, as we finish the Sermon of Jesus, we're calling it Be Good Students. Be Good Students. It can be found on page 861 in the Black Bibles under the chairs. It's Luke Six verses twenty-seven through forty-nine. Just by way of a show of hands, how many of you would say you were a good student when you were in school growing up? What do you think? A lot of you. Okay. Um, I would say it depends on the definition, but I wasn't always a good student, right? And I had the blessing of marrying a woman while I was still in college, who was a very good student. So thank you, honey. I'm I'm thankful for that. Thankful for that blessing of learning what it means to be a good student. The Bible reinforces this concept that took me a while to learn. I learned it from my coaches in school that if you want to get better at something, if you want to learn something, you have to practice. You have to do what you know. You can't just know things with your head. Information is not enough. This is really clear throughout Scripture. You have to do what God says. Knowing isn't true knowing in the biblical sense unless you're doing what you know. That's what it means to be a good student. Um, One thing particularly that I have studied a lot, learned a lot about, but then have failed at times to implement, to practice, is the study of water drainage around our house. And so this is pertinent because you know the last few weeks we've had a lot of flash flooding, right? Right. I don't know if you all have noticed this, but it's been raining a lot, raining really hard, Um, and about three weeks ago, I guess, my wife and I were just going to have a relaxing evening, ate an early dinner, you know, we're not quite at the like four o'clock supper and then murder murder she wrote, but we're like, we're moving that direction, right? And so we were eating an early dinner. We were going to watch a movie. We were relaxing, and uh, we were excited about it. We just finished dinner, and my wife had like walked around a bookshelf or walked around the bed or something to get something, and she's like, oh, the floor's wet. And I was like, oh, no, the floor's wet. Why is the floor wet? Well, it wasn't because we had spilled a glass of water. It's because the flash flooding was coming into our house. And the reason the flash flooding was coming into our house, is because I wasn't practicing what I knew about drainage. I'd studied how to put in a French drain. And then I put in a French drain, and that was really helping with the drainage. And then I got the bright idea through further study that I would make the French drain even bigger and more amazing. So I took off the lid, and I started digging another ditch, and I was going to attach a whole other side to it. It was going to be twice as big. Y'all, it was going to be so great. But I got distracted, and, and I stopped working on it, and we kind of went through a dry season, and I just didn't think about it for like three months. <laughs> and when you leave the lid, the grate, off of the French drain, what happens? Well, it, it fills with leaves and dirt and sticks and probably like dead frogs and stuff, right? And so this French drain just got packed. And so the French drain that was working pretty well for the last few years wasn't working at all the other night. It was just totally jammed. And so that night, the rains are coming, the flood is happening, my wife is shop vacing the floor, and I'm out digging in the mud, and it was miserable, right? Now, I thank God that I had her help, and I thank God that it, it wasn't more disastrous than it had to be, right? We had a solid foundation, and our house did not wash away. Thank you, Jesus. But Jesus uses that illustration, floods coming and washing our house away. He uses that illustration to talk about the idea that we need to actually do what he says. Jesus is framing discipleship like this. He's saying that if you don't actually do what I say, then you're not my disciple. If you don't actually implement the things that I'm teaching, you have no foundation and your life can be washed away. Now, that sounds really extreme. And so what we want to do is we want to read the text. We want to hear it from Jesus. And then we want to pray that, that Jesus would help us to make sense of this because it's, it's a tough passage. So let's read the text. It's Luke 6 verses 27 through 49. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them. That's the golden rule. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those And you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher." Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me And here's my words and does them. I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. I said, this is an intense, a stark warning from Jesus. He says he wants us to hear what he says and then do what he says. But I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert here. What he's calling us to do is impossible. He's calling us to the impossible. And Jesus is clear about this later on in Luke. He says, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. So we need his Holy Spirit to do what he says, to hear what he says, to trust him. Uh, I'm going to pray that he would meet with us and help us. Let me pray for his spirit. God, we pray that your spirit uh, would open our eyes to what you're saying. Some of this just sounds too much. It's overwhelming. So God, will you meet us here? You say that you're merciful. You say that you're kind. And so we, we pray asking for you to reveal your mercy, reveal your kindness to us, to help us, to comfort us, to be with us, to be present by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we understand what it means to be good students, he's going to give us three impossible things to do. And my thesis is we have to actually do what he says if we want to be good students. So being a good student is not just thinking about things. I'm kind of preaching it myself here because I'm a, I'm a pondering person. I'm like a wonder person. I like to think about possibilities. I'm the kind of person that likes to ask a lot of questions and maybe not ever finish anything, right? But Jesus is saying, no, no do what I've told you to do implement this, right? One professor shared it this way to me years ago, and I thought this was really helpful. There are so many things that we get caught up with that we don't understand in the Bible, but if we were to just obey what we understand, things would be fine. <laughs> We'd be fine. We don't need to waste as much time with the stuff we don't understand. Well, there are three impossible things he tells us to do. If you want to be a good student, if you want to be a good disciple, if you want to be like Jesus, he says, number one, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Number two, stop being judgy. Stop being judgy. And then number three, produce supernatural fruit. That's all he asks of us, just those three simple things. They are impossible, and I, I do want to emphasize that again and again. I, I prayed for the Spirit. We need the Spirit. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And I also want to say it this way. You can't do what Jesus says if you don't trust him. You cannot do what Jesus says if you don't trust him. We'll we'll end up back there again, but we just want to start there. It starts with a relationship with Jesus. Uh, Being led by the Holy Spirit, depending on the Holy Spirit, is trusting that God is merciful, inviting him, receiving him, walking in faith by him. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is... Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20 says, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. So all this foundation language, this everything else being washed away, what's left? It's, it's Jesus. He's the center. So we're going we're gonna to sojourn into some hard things that he calls us to, but trusting Jesus is the center of all this. Jesus says in John 6.29, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the ultimate work. All the other work flows from that. Is it hard work? Yes. Is it impossible work? Yes. Trust Jesus and he'll walk with you. He'll meet you there, he'll meet us there. So, number one, love your enemies. Love your enemies. We see this in the first section, verses 27 through 36. This is echoed a lot of other places. In the New Testament, again, this mirrors a lot of the material from the sermon on the mount. We assume that Jesus, uh, and even there's some verses that say this kind of thing, he preached a lot of the same material from town to town. You know, if I go preach at another church, chances are I'm going to steal some material from a sermon I did here. And that seems to be what's happening with this sermon versus the Matthew sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, And so there's echoes, a lot of echoes between the two sermons. But also, you know, then the rest of the New Testament is is kind of pulling this out and saying, yeah, we got to love our enemies. Why? Because Christ, he loved his enemies. And so we see this reiterated here. Um, We'll read again verse 27. He says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Then he's going to define it. What does that mean? Do good to those who hate you. And then he goes on, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. I want you to know if you've been abused, I'm praying for you because I know this is really hard to hear. And sometimes praying for your abuser and forgiving your abuser also includes confronting your abuser and prosecuting your abuser. Forgiveness and love does not mean you let them go on abusing other people. So there there are two sides of this. Yes, Jesus calls us to forgive. But part of that forgiveness might mean, man, I'm free and I'm setting you free spiritually between you and me. You don't owe me anything but we, we might want to make sure you're locked up so you can't do this to other people. That can be part of it. Love confronts. So don't misunderstand what this means as passivity. Don't, don't misunderstand this loving your enemies is just like rolling over and being a doormat. It's, that's not necessarily what this means. He goes on in verse 29, "'To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either.'" A lot of commentators think this is a reflection of Roman law. The Roman soldiers were, were able to like, uh, take some stuff from people to, for the sake of the mission. you know, right? Like in the action movies where they commandeer a car. You know? They could do that with a cloak in the Roman Empire. Um, but also there's this, this striking of the cheek thing. We think of this as like, if someone's trying to beat you up, let them beat you to a pulp. That's not necessarily what it's saying. It's more of a dishonor thing, right? So, I don't know if you've seen this in the old movies, the, the white glove, and you slap the man with a white glove, right? It's a, it's a dishonor. You, you didn't actually hurt him. It's kind of like that in, in this culture. Um, it's, it's a spitting in the face kind of statement here. And so he's saying, you can be dishonored, right? If like if the God of the universe has given you ultimate honor and he said that you're my son and I love you and you're in my inner circle and you're part of the inheritance of all things, you're with me ruling and reigning over the universe, then, then you're, you're going to feel some freedom to not have to fight for your own honor. Do you see how that works? He goes on and he says in verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So again, how this is worded, we're more familiar with the other wording of this. It's called the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. One of my professors worded this. He would talk about it as the platinum rule. So the golden rule, and he would say it this way. To the degree that you believe you are loved, you will love others in that way. To the degree that you believe you're loved, you're going to love others in that same way. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners uh, lend to sinners to get back the same amount. It's interesting, this word benefit repeated a couple of times and he switches to credit, but benefit repeated a couple of times is the word uh, charis in Greek is grace, like if, if you just help those that can pay you back, like what kind of grace is that? That's not grace. That's, that's an exchange rate. That's a return on investment relationship. But that's not grace. Jesus is challenging us to give grace the way that he's given grace to us. That's, that's what he's requiring here. Verse 35, but love your enemies, returning to the theme again, tying it all together, right? He said, love your enemies, verse 27, now he comes back to it at the end. Sometimes the literary arrangement, we call that like a bookend. He starts and ends with the same phrase, uh, or you might call that an inclusio would be a fancy word for that, but it's like he starts with a theme. He's coming back to the theme. Just so you know, this whole theme is love your enemies. Love your enemies. He's going to just say it in the hardest way possible. It's under this whole kind of umbrella of The general concept of giving grace that's undeserved because God has given grace that's undeserved to us. But he's going to say it in the hardest way he can say it. Love your enemies. Love your enemies and do good and and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is hard language. Um, Jesus often used very inflammatory language. He was a good public speaker he didn 't always pull his punches when we read the whole New Testament that the apostles often explain with more detail and with more nuance what Jesus was saying here right and so we understand that all people are made in the image of God, and there 's this kind of beautiful imago day, good things that happen in our life, you know common grace and we're not as evil as we could be. I was talking with a friend about this the other day. There's a historic Protestant doctrine called total depravity. Sometimes we misunderstand that to mean we're as bad as we could be, or all people are just really, 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 really bad, right? Total depravity doesn't mean that. It just means we're all broken. We're all depraved. We all need Jesus to save us. There's not like some holy part of us that we can save ourselves with, right? So whatever your gifts are, whatever your strengths are, you're tempted to think, oh, that part of me is not depraved. I'm really clever. That part of me is holy and I can save myself by being clever. Or I'm really charming and that part of me is not depraved and I can save myself by being charming. No, total depravity means we're completely broken all the way down and we need Jesus to save us. But it doesn't mean you're all mean, right? It doesn't mean you're all terrible. I know a lot of you and and most of you are pretty nice, right? Right? I mean, some of you might illustrate total depravity a little more extremely, but for the most part, you're really nice people, right? And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, well, compared to God, he uses the same kind of comparison later on in Luke, where he talks about asking for the Holy Spirit. He's like, even you evil dads know how to be nice to your kids. How much more our heavenly father is going to be loving and kind to his children, right? So again, it's this kind of comparison that he's making. He's using stark poetic language. We're not as evil as we could be, but compared to God, we're evil. And God is kind to us. He shows us grace. We don't deserve salvation, but he gives salvation to us as a free gift. We also want to read this in context and say, what does the rest of the book of Luke explain about the kindness of God? If we want to be sons of the Most High who show kindness to those who are ungrateful and evil, just like God does. What what does that mean in context of the book of Luke? Read the whole thing in context. Where is this whole story going? It's going to a Jesus who offers himself as the Passover lamb in Jerusalem. He offers himself for us as the perfect sacrifice. He dies on the cross for our sins. That's the clearest image of a father who is kind and gracious to those who are ungrateful and undeserving. Jesus gives himself for us and then he rises from the dead showing us, vindicating that he has actually defeated sin and death, that he is the living embodiment of the father's kindness. So then verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. That's all God's asking us to do. Just be as merciful as God. Just love your enemies the way God loves his enemies. And so again, we have to say this, this is impossible. If you're a rule person, if you're a doer, these passages can really grate against you, right? You're like, God, that's unfair. No, it's, it's not unfair because he gives you himself. He gives you himself. It is impossible in your flesh, but he's not asking you to do this in your flesh. He's asking you to trust him. He's asking you to run to him, to be loved by him so that you can love others. Tom Wright says it this way, um, be like God. You are to be like this because that's what God is like. I don't know why I had to quote a PhD scholar for that. That's pretty simple, right? Should be like God, imitate God. Ephesians says it like this, Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So again, we we show grace because we've received grace. We talk about that all the time with financial giving. We give because we've been given to. We don't give to get the blessing. Is there a blessing that just drips off of generosity? Yeah, that's clear in the scriptures as well. There are blessings that trail behind generosity, but we never give for the blessings. We give because we believe Jesus has given to us. That's the point. Not this like one for one return on investment. Well, I'll I'll put some quarters into the machine and then God will have to bless me. No, he's given you everything in Jesus. You're adopted as children of God. He can't give you any more. And so then we spend our lives giving to others, loving even enemies. So it's not meant to be easy, but supernatural. Jesus imitating love and sacrifices. One way to think about this is who are the people who do not deserve love? Think about those people in your life. Who are the people that do not deserve love? Love them. I don't, I don't like this passage either. I just want to be honest with you. But also know that love can include correcting and resisting. That, that can be a part of love. It's not just being passive and rolling over and it's not even feeling all ooey-gooey and mushy towards people. It's, it's acts of kindness and good. It's blessing someone, even, even knowing you may not get anything in return. In years and years of ministry, I've become a little more cynical about people. I just have to confess that, and I just have to pray that God would continue to let my heart be soft and tender towards people. But I also know that that, that softness and that optimism is not the same thing as love actually doing the actions of, of being kind. That, that is love. And so I would pray that that would be what we're known for, that we would be known for these acts of kindness, even though it, it might not change people. We're, we're offering that up as a, as a fragrant offering to God. That, that's what he's describing in Ephesians 5.1. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, like burning incense, being burnt up. You're, you're you're wasting. You're burning your life away. You're giving it away for God's glory. So, again, this can include correcting. This can include prosecuting sometimes. Um, doesn't always mean rolling over. We see Paul uh, making legal appeals in the New Testaments. So we see that kind of direction that this can go. He's loving people by making legal appeals. We also see uh, police and soldiers. Being spoken of very highly in the Bible. Romans chapter 13 reinforces what Protestants generally describe as just war theory. The idea that one of God's graces is to use force to stop evil in the world, right? So we have different jurisdictions for that. Um, We even would argue in some cases, and this is a little harder because we don't have as many explicit verses, but we would even argue in some cases that this does not exclude self-defense, You don't have to fight for your honor, fight for your salvation, right? You can be hurt, give back to others, but also sometimes there's a just place for self-defense. It's reinforced in the Old Testament, and Jesus even seems to imply this when he's about to go to the cross, and he tells his disciples, like, yeah, you're going to need a sword. Like, he he tells them that, right? He's very clear to Peter, we're not going to use the sword to preach the gospel. That's not how we're going to do this whole cross and salvation thing. But then he's also saying, but but yeah, you're going to need a sword. Things are going to get hairy. So, so it's hard for us to make sense of all that, right? And so let's just come back to, but what is he asking us to do? Are there exceptions? Are there caveats? Yeah, we don't want to spend a lot of time on the caveats. We can talk more about that afterwards. What does he tell us to do? He tells us to love our enemies. He's telling you to do the hardest thing possible. He says it this way in Romans 12. Um, there's just a list where he kind of goes into more detail, fleshing out, Paul fleshing out in Romans 12, What Jesus is saying here. So Romans 12 says it this way. This is a laundry list. You don't have to turn there, but these are some, just pray that that the Lord would convict you with one of these as as something you need to work on this week. Like, okay, Lord, just give me something to do this week because I can't do everything, everywhere, all the time, love all bad people, right? So just listen to this list and say, Lord, just give me one of these to hang on to this week. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who Rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, that means self-important. Don't be self-important, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God." for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I've interpreted this before. This comes from the Old Testament. That doesn't mean you're trying to kill them. Burning coals is a symbol of the purity, the cleansing righteousness of the altar of God. So it's like, By being kind to someone, you're going to purify them. They're going to be convicted of their sin. And he finishes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So all of this, loving our enemies, where does it come from? It comes from Jesus, because that's what he did. So we start with him. We look at God. We're imitating Jesus. We're imitating the Father. Thomas Chalmers is a, a famous Puritan that had a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I talk about this like every year, I think, at the church. If you've been around a while, you've heard this before, but it's good. You want to hear it again. He says, the expulsive power of a new affection is when you love one thing and then you see something more beautiful. And that more beautiful thing pushes out your love for the first thing. And he says, that's how God cleanses sin out of our own hearts. And that's how God teaches us to love our enemies because we see this treasure that Christ is and we treasure him more than anything. And when we see him as the greatest good, it pushes out all those other things we're fighting for. And we live more freely and we're able to love and bless those who have hurt us. I grabbed a picture of treasure because Jesus uses this analogy again and again, treasure, right? Do you have treasure in heaven or is your treasure just in this world? Is your treasure just your intelligence and your money and your relationships or is your treasure Christ? And what he's calling you to, do you see him as ultimate treasure? I thought it was helpful to use the picture of gold coins in a wooden box because it's become such a caricature in our culture. Like if you're walking through a field, like next week you're hiking at Danny Peak Park and you find a box with gold in it, what would you think? You'd probably think, this is what you would really think, you'd probably think that's fake, right? Right? because we don't see treasure like this, right? Like if it was like a wallet with a bunch of $100 bills, you'd be like, yeah, right? You'd be excited because that's, that's how money works in our society. We don't see uh, pirate treasure chests hanging around right? Like we just don't see that. First of all, you'd think it's fake. It's a prop from a movie set. Maybe somebody's filming something out here, right? Or you'd think maybe it's chocolate. You pick some up, you try to eat it, right? <laughs> because we just don't do treasure that way. So think in your mind, what's the thing that just makes you like catch your breath? Like, oh, <gasps> oh, look, right? Like, oh, new car. Or pretty person, right? <laughs> like, what, what are the things that, that catch your attention, right? That's the treasure in your life. And, and what Jesus is calling us to is that when we see him and see what he's done for us, that that, that would be the, <gasps> like, take my breath away. That would be like, I've struck it rich. That's a parable. He says that, like, finding the kingdom, finding life in him is like, you found a treasure in a field. You sold everything else you had because you want that treasure. It's ultimate to you. And that's what the life in Christ is like. When he's that ultimate treasure, then that degree that you feel loved by Jesus, to that degree, you'll begin to love others. Not perfectly, not every day, not all the time, not every minute, but you're going to grow more and more being conformed to the image of Jesus. As he says, Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We will be imitators of God. Second point is stop being judgy. Stop being judgy. This flows downstream from what he's already said. We see this in verses 37 through 42. I have to use the phrase judgy um, to differentiate it from judge because the scripture is clear that we are to judge. It's just a certain kind of judging that we're not to do. So the way a lot of people say this is don't be judgmental, right? Don't be judgy. Don't be a legalist. Don't think that you're better than other people when you judge, but we are to make judgments. And this will come out in the text. Stop being judgy. So again, verses 37 through 42, judge not, and you will not be judged. Now he's going to explain it with the next phrase. We call this Hebrew parallelism. So in Proverbs and Psalms, you often have a Interesting phrase, and then it's restated in different words. That's what he's doing here. Judge not, you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your lap. Using visual language for this abundant overflow. He's saying that generosity will be shown to you as you are generous. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So again, the basic standard here is, as you are gracious, you'll enjoy grace from God. Now again, as we read the rest of the New Testament, Jesus makes this sound very conditional. He's, he's trying to punch the legalists in the face, so to speak here. So for those of you, for me, when we struggle with thinking like, man, I've, I've done good things and God really owes me. He's like, okay, you're not, you're not getting it. So to the degree that you're gracious, that, that shows me that you understand God's grace. He's, he's trying to upset us. He's trying to shake us up a little bit. Now the rest of the New Testament spells this out and it's like, well, really, really it starts with you receiving God's grace and then you start showing grace to other people, right? And so the order is fleshed out on the rest of the New Testament as a very clear order of once we see the grace of God, then we respond in a lifestyle of showing grace to others. But Jesus is kind of backwards engineering this here and saying, hey, if you, if you don't show grace to anybody, you probably don't know Jesus. If you're harsh and judgy, you probably don't get it. You probably don't understand the gospel. So again, he says, this measure will be measured back to you. Verse 39, he also told him this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? He uses this language a lot to talk about the Pharisees who were judging others, who were thinking that they were approved by God because they were doing all these certain things. We've talked about this a lot over the last few years. There, there are two ways to deal with sin. Kind of the progressive cool way to deal with sin is say that sin doesn't exist and that whatever your heart can dream up is good because it came from you. I'm sad to tell you, no, that's not going to work out for you. It's going to hurt you. The other way of dealing with sin is often the way of religion or legalism or the Pharisees, which is saying, yeah, I get the concept of sin and I'm a good person and God now owes me because I've I've done the good things. And we kind of hide the stuff that we don't want people to see. We inflate the things that we've done well, and we think we've achieved righteousness by our own accomplishment. And this is what Jesus is attacking here. A blind man can't lead other people. They'll just lead him into a pit. Verse 40, a disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher the more you disciple and apprentice yourself to Jesus, the more you follow Jesus, the more you love Jesus, the more you are interested in Jesus, the more you'll look like Jesus. That's the good news. Again, not perfect. It's, it's like how a, a puppy dog you know follows a 12-year-old home. It's like stumbling and it can't keep up, right? But there's a following there. Are you following Jesus? Is he your teacher? Is he the one that you see as your hope. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. He goes on to kind of flush this out a little bit more. Verse 41, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I get specks in my eyes a lot. I have really tiny eyes with no eyelashes. So it's just a kind of a, a physical problem I have, right? And so we have a lot of allergies here. Some people get allergies in their nose. My nose is big. There's plenty of room. No allergy problems there. But my tiny eyes, I get pollen and I'm always like scratching my eyes. I haven't had an eye infection the last few weeks. It drives me crazy. Um, But if I was trying to get a speck out of my eye, I wouldn't ask the person that has a giant log sticking out of their face, right? Like I'd I'd find someone that has some good reading glasses, maybe a magnifying glass and and nothing obstructing their vision. Jesus says, this is ridiculous. You have this giant log in your own face and you're going around trying to pick the specks out of other people's eyes. Jesus has a, a sense of humor, I grabbed a, a chart, a theological chart of this. <laughs> Person one is scratching their eyes. Dude, I think I got something in my eye. Person two is like, hey, don't worry, I'll help you get it out. And he's got this giant board sticking out of his face. Jesus wants us to laugh at this, right? It, he wants us to laugh at ourselves. We can be ridiculous. We, we can think, ah, I've got it all figured out, Right? Now, is there a category, again, read the rest of the New Testament in context, are there these caveats, these categories where there are more mature people that have something to teach less mature people? Of course, yes. But Jesus is really trying to dig at our judginess. He's trying to confront our legalism. He's trying to confront our thinking that, that we've arrived. He's saying, no, deal, deal with your own sin first. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck in your eye when you yourself don't see the log that's in your eye? You hypocrite. That means mask wearer. You're pretending. No, you got sin too. You have to deal with it. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Do you see where he ended there? He ends with judging. Don't be judgy as you judge people. And that's that's the New Testament tension. Like you want to help your brother with their struggle. Like your, your friend is caught in sin and killing themselves with this adulterous affair or this porn addiction or this drug addiction or just this bad habit. Yeah, you want to help them. Yeah, you, you have the freedom to say that's a bad thing that's hurting you. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Jesus. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We want to be friends of sinners. That doesn't, that doesn't mean Jesus was a modern progressive, wimpy Christian that was like afraid to say that something's a sin. That's not the kind of friend of sinners he was. Was he gracious? Did he freak out religious people? Yes. We want to be the kinds of people that love sinners so much that we freak out our religious friends. And we want to be the kinds of people that actually say that sin exists and we freak out our non-religious friends. And we do both of those things because Jesus is our only hope. So we want to be gracious and truthful. We want to weave those things together. We need the Holy Spirit's power to do this because we cannot do it on our own. So what are some areas of judgmentalism in your own life? I mentioned this before. It's often the areas where we're strong, right? If you're a good problem solver, you're going to kind of be disgusted at people that aren't good at solving their own problems. If you're really clean, you'll be disgusted at dirty people. If you're really friendly, you'll be kind of disgusted at people that are not friendly, What's, what's your area of strength? Often that's where we judge people. And that's a sign that we're kind of looking to a, a false idol for salvation. We're like, well, I've, I've saved myself by being wealthy, or I've saved myself by being kind and warm-hearted. No, Jesus is your hope. That's not your hope. And so judginess can, can be a sign of these, these false idols that we have. And he gives us a very clear format here. Deal with your sin, be confessional, it says in Romans 12, don't be haughty. Don't be like thinking you're above other people. Meet people where they are. Confess your own sin, but then still deal with it graciously, tenderly. Like, hey, I know I'm not perfect, but I see this. And I'm worried about you. I'm praying about it. We deal with it patiently, carefully. Exhortation is still something we're called to. Don't be haughty. Walk with the weak. Be humble. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Finally, we're called to produce supernatural fruit. We're called to produce supernatural fruit. This will be kind of the last point, and then we'll uh, transition this into the conclusion as well. He's, He's wrapping these things together. So verse 43, he says it this way. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And then he's going to go on to the foundation analogy. And it's really interesting. Jesus is putting these two analogies together. The roots analogy. If your roots are good, if your tree is good, then the fruit will be healthy. You'll you'll produce good things. And then he also uses the foundation analogy. Paul actually mingles these together in Colossians and Ephesians. He's like, this is what it means to really produce good things in your life. It's to be rooted and founded in the love of Jesus. What's your foundation? Where where are your roots tapped in? The way Psalm 1 says it is, blessed are the man whose roots go down deep into the streams of God and his word. And that person will be like a healthy tree. You'll be strong. You'll produce good fruit. You'll survive the droughts that will come. The droughts will come. So I grabbed a picture of tree roots going deep down in the ground. It's, it's beautiful to see trees where you can kind of see the roots because a lot of times they're totally covered, but exposed roots are really beautiful. And they go deep, deep down under the ground to draw in nutrients. And Jesus is saying, and Paul later will say, those roots in our lives have to be tapped down into Jesus himself. So where are your roots? Jesus is gonna say, let's, let's start with the fruit. Well, let's check out the fruit. Do you have any good fruit in your life? So we read the rest of the New Testament. Good fruit can be the knowledge of God, knowing that God is good. It can be the knowledge of his word. It can be the fruit of good works, of serving other people, helping people, tangibly making a difference in the world. One of the most famous examples of fruit is in the uh, Galatians 5, 23 section there. It's often called the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is this list of virtues. This will be another area where I'm going to just read this list and say, will you pray as I'm reading this? Like God, am I bearing these fruits? Am I producing these supernatural fruits in my life? Just hear them and say, God, which one of these? Like, let one of these stick. When our kids were little, we used to pray about these. It's kind of a yearly exercise. We'd pray around the breakfast table like, hey, what's a, what's a fruit of the Spirit we want to pray for more of in our life? And we just, as a family, pray for each other that these would be exhibited. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are these virtues being exhibited in your life? Jesus, Paul are going to backwards engineer that and say, if this fruit isn't apparent in your life, maybe your roots aren't tapped down into the good soil of Jesus himself. Maybe your foundation is not the goodness of a gracious God who shows mercy to the unmerciful, shows kindness to the ungrateful and the evil. Is that your foundation? Is that where your root is planted? We can work on these things as well. I think one of the things that we see in this whole thing is Jesus keeps challenging us to do stuff, right? He challenges us first to go to go, do, go obey, study for the test by doing the things that Jesus has said. So it's okay to just say, go, go do these things, right? Start practicing these things, start showing kindness and love and practice these things. And as you stumble and fall, say, Jesus, help me because this is really hard and I can't do this without you. And it's a, it's a cycle. Paul describes the cycle in Colossians of putting off and putting on. We, we put off the old man, like, man, I feel selfish and mad about this, and we put on the new man. Jesus loves me, so I'm going to love these other people around me. It's this everyday cycle. It's not a once-for-all thing, but it's a, a walk with Jesus. As we root ourselves in, in Jesus, then we can practice moral purity because Jesus is pure. We can serve others because Jesus serves us. We can study and love God's word like it talks about in Psalm 1 because Jesus is God's word and we delight in him. These are different ways that we reflect supernatural fruit to the world around us. So he says in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Why do you say you're my student and you're not actually imitating me? That's what Jesus says, and like I said, this is a hard teaching. We'll end here. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Paul says in Ephesians chapter three that Jesus is that foundation. Jesus is the foundation. As I said at the the very beginning, we can't do what Jesus says if we don't trust Jesus. Jesus is the foundation. This prayer that Paul makes in Ephesians three is that we would, be rooted and grounded in the love that the Father has for us in Christ. That is our foundation. And we wish that what he said was, you know, if you're rooted and grounded in Jesus, then the storms will never come. But he says the storms are coming. The flood is coming. And you may feel like, man, I'm in this this place where everything's been washed away. (laughs) And I would encourage you to found yourself on Christ the person of Jesus. When everything is washed away, you still have Jesus. And that makes it worth it. Trust him. Run to him. He's, he's going to be there for you. He is our foundation. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you gave yourself for us. You're the rock. You're the refuge. You're the foundation. Help us by faith to trust you. We pray again, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of our lack, and that you would magnify Jesus as our hero. As you do this, that will make us good students. That will enable us to do what you say. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.